why is redevelopment still driven by normative ideas about real estate values? We keep thinking like, wait a minute, something completely alternative is possible here. The ingredients are all there. Why aren't we seeing it happen on a larger scale? From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City, conversations on how we live where we live. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with Anya Sorota, architectural designer interested in the intersection of social enterprise and cultural production. Anya joins us today to discuss her ongoing work in Detroit. Anya, welcome. So good to be here. So I know that you and your partner in the firm, Akaki, Jean-Louis Forge, have been working on an ambitious project for Detroit, over 80 acres, cultural center planning initiative uh, in collaboration with the French landscape architects of Agence Terre. Tell us about that planning initiative and how you got involved in it. Well, about a year and a, and a half ago, there was a competition to design a plaza and a cultural district in Detroit. And the challenge of it was that the 12 institutions in that cultural district preceded the, the urban plan. And so it was, it was typically we do very few competitions, but we just couldn't resist because the challenge was so enticing and so great. How do you stitch together institutions that have evolved over a hundred years with their own logics, their own aspirations, their own idiosyncratic identities? And how do you get them to work together? We had partnered with Agence Théon and with colleagues from the University of Michigan. And um, we did something slightly bold, in my opinion, insofar as that we did not present a formal response to this competition. We presented a series of diagrams and a series of shared elements. And we suggested that for this to be a sustainable and truly inclusive plan, those elements would need to be calibrated to the particular interests of each institution. So in the competition phase, our team produced a number of adaptable elements. This included a pedestrian framework, a band of ephemeral plazas and green spaces, a thick vegetal buffer with integrated water management systems, a meandering necklace, let's say, of micro landscapes designed to house a range of um, performances and public art experiences. We made the case at the competition phase that to integrate these elements into a coherent shared plan, we would need to engage each institution individually and to calibrate the design to each institution's unique aspirations. And that in parallel, the strategy would require us to conduct a series of robust feasibility studies around mobility, parking, water infrastructure that would measure and explore how these proposed elements would impact the district and the city. So we moved forward, we were selected, we moved forward with this uh, effort, which was ultimately an alibi to expand on one major conceptual instigation of the project. And the question that we most simply put to ourselves and others was how do you convince individuals, whether those are people or institutions, to blur their property lines? In, in essence, it's antithetical to every organizational premise of the American context, of the American city. And Detroit's cultural district is contingent on solving for that specific problem. 
There's no publicly owned land in the district. So how do you begin to negotiate a plan, for lack of a better word, that pretends to be continuous and that encourages the institutions to play well with others so that the visitor and the resident can experience a continuous holistic landscape? Koaiki is fundamentally a collaboration between myself, uh, and I think of myself as a melancholic ex-Soviet, and my partner, Jean-Louis Farge, who is, let's say, a quintessential auto, uh, autodidact, uh, anarchist French person. Together, there's a kind of system of checks and balances, I think, between us in terms of what we look at, what inspires us, what we seek to produce that's uh, singular, authentic to, to the people that we are. I think, you know, our practice is really based on the synergies of our collective vision and sometimes the dissonances between the two of us, you know, against, against all odds, we were selected. And then, you know, we inherited the additional challenge of working through this intense engagement process with the stakeholders in order to, to actually deliver on what we had promised. It's longstanding, you know, conventional wisdom in competition land that uh, among the first things you do is break the rules, right? This is a given. But it strikes me that not only did you circumvent the rules, you changed the structure altogether. I mean, what, what did you do with all those boards you were meant to submit or all of those PDF files that were meant to be filled? You mentioned diagrams and the notion that each institution should, in some ways, determine its own future with your advice and consent. But so what was the content of the submission and how did it differ from maybe a more conventional competition entry? Well, I would say the, the key element that we presented was an animation. So it was a diagram in the form of an animation that sort of uh, highlighted that for us to be able to design the elements, certain negotiations would have to be made from the get-go. And so we animated the features that would need, for example, a strong mobility study. How do you transform a neighborhood into a pedestrian-centric experience when you need to prove that the transformation of streets won't uh, necessarily impact negatively the culture of a city that's married to the notion of an automobile as the center of human experience. You know, from the beginning, we, we understood and we, we situated a mobility study, a parking study, an ecological study of uh, water management as central to being able to then begin to calibrate the way the landscape could be treated and the way public infrastructure could be shared, stewarded, and, and governed. You mentioned the ambitious scope of the competition and your own approach to it. Could you say something about like what challenges or what problems, to, to use that term, uh, was the competition seeking to solve for? I mean, the notion of a, a very large cultural center or cultural campus, to use that term, 80 acres, you know, a number of different cultural institutions. Presumably, those institutions had not had a history of working together, uh, apart from, you know, being neighborly or, you know, polite, you know, citizens. What was the goal behind the competition brief? And what did you see in it that caused you to want to enter it beyond the individual identity of the institutions that were implicated? Well, the competition brief suggested that there was a need to create a dynamic ur urban environment and that that dynamic urban environment would need to be inclusive because of the plethora of different uh, institutions on site and because their audiences don't necessarily 
share experiences and they don't necessarily come from the same portions of the city. And that was incredibly intriguing because first, if you know Detroit, you, you realize that it's an incredibly large city that's distended, that's not very dense. And the idea of creating urban dynamism where density is so low is quite a challenge. And how do you do that beyond the kind of, you know, eventscaping and palatial party programming that has driven uh, so many public spaces in Detroit through festivals and, and other large scale events that bring the entire metropolitan area into a space and collective conversation about how to engage it. But in the quotidian, how do you begin to invest in the, in the use of public space and public infrastructure and how do you make it inviting for all? What is its attitude and what is its vibe? given that every institution has its own histories and, and challenges. That was sort of just too delicious to pass up. I mean, I, I'm inspired to want to mount something of a defense or recuperation of palatial party you know, planning. I think there's, there's something to that. You, you use the term vibe. So these are, am I fair in understanding, am I, am I correct in understanding, these are institutions disproportionately servicing a broader metropolitan area Tell us about the institutions. Give us some some detail about the kinds of, you know, Detroit, you know, for our listeners, of course, 139 acres, less than half the population that it, you know, that it reached in the middle of the 20th century, a suburban metropolitan population, uh, you know, growing uh, both horizontally and in population, a city in which the cultural resources, you know, the art museums and other forms of cultural venues have persisted in a way as the fabric of the city has eroded. Is that a fair image for our listeners? And can you tell us more about the sort of particularities of some of the institutions that you've been engaging with? Well, I think one instance in this landscape that really captures the showdown between what might be considered an audience that engages the inner city community and an inner city demographic versus a more regional reach is a Woodward Avenue. It's the sort of central historic artery of the city. And across the street from Woodward on the east side, you have the Detroit Institute of Arts. And that's a kind of venerable institution, classical in attitude, palatial, uh, an intimidating threshold. It sort of, it really acts its age and, and also is supported by a millage that enables that institution and enable that institution to survive the difficult economic scenarios in Detroit. In the absence of building more buildings, right, in the, uh, in the context of, you know, Detroit's uh, relative renaissance in the rest the past several years, in the absence of, you know, rebuilding the entire urban fabric, um, in the absence of that kind of traditional urban design response, what are the tools, what are the media that you have available in addition to parking and other quotidian uh, interests to try to affect a sense of urbanity, if it's not the intensity of programming on the one hand and not rebuilding the kind of, you know, the container of, you know, urban destination through more and more building fabric, what are the media that are available to you and, and, and your team? Well, one of the important mediums that we've discovered is public programming and the quality of the institutions that are currently on site is that they're introverted, they're, they're sealed very little porosity, very little visibility is built into the architecture. They're built with a, a sense of stoicism toward the street, a care for their interior core. 
And what we're attempting to do is work individually with each institution on what we're calling architectural plugins. It's a clear consideration of the interior party and how it relates to the exterior and what programming could possibly be taken outdoors to create a distended cultural landscape where the architecture and the landscape begin to, to meld and begin to activate a more pluralistic and less boundary transcribed cultural experience. That means rearranging some floor plates, opening facades wherever possible, but that also means embedding the landscape with a certain amount of infrastructure that can help performance, that can help uh, instigate other artistic experiences in public space that don't necessarily count on monumentality and three-dimensional works to tell the story of place. And so there's this sentiment in the way that we're attempting to design is that the generosity of space and the appropriate infrastructure can create the right climate for a multiplicity of cultural expressions. And then we might be able to create a more pluralistic public realm because audiences will mix outside of the architecture. And is the implication of this, Anya, that institutions might be invited to take more of a custodial is really the best term I've got for it, a kind of a sense of civic responsibility about the territory just beyond their property boundary? Exactly. And it's it's also the, the notion that by transforming streets and parking structures into something that's fuzzy, that's multi, uh, uh, that, that's governed by multiple constituencies, that, that's shared, there might be a new form of stewardship that's born that's not solely top-down, but, but that's a little bit more horizontal where smaller institutions can play an important role in crafting the use and experience of those spaces. I'm also interested in the the role of, you know, let's call it, you know, uh, local, regional, on-site talent and the idea of remote talent. I think that's a, a topic is sort of with us in the design fields these days. So you've been living in Southeastern Michigan for about a dozen years now, as I have it. So in, on the one hand, from the outside at the same time, increasingly, you know, of the place. Um, and so I'm interested in to what extent you think think of yourself or in the context of this project, you imagine yourself operating on the ground as an insider or somebody of the place. And then what's it like to then invite some colleagues from, you know, another part of the world to join you in that? Uh, I'm interested both in your perception of that inside-outside relationship, but also any any thoughts you have about the, the tensions or the challenges of working, you know, uh, a quarter of the way around the globe. I would have to be honest that regardless of of the 10 years spent or the decades spent in Southeast Michigan, my partner Jean-Louis and I consider ourselves very much still outside of the place. It's something that's complex, but we're conscientious that to be rooted in a place is to invest in its real estate, to invest in its social structures. And we've been very light-footed about our work in Detroit. And we are conscientious that regardless of how long we've been there, our position is still that of outsiders. Now that said, as outsiders, with the number of projects that we've been involved in, we're hypersensitive to the local context, to perception, to issues of access, to um, frustrations that uh, residents might have with the way public infrastructure is 
is governed or where where investments are made or questions of uh, gentrification or questions of the racialization of territories and spaces, the relationship of um, neighborhoods to the city center. All of these issues are live. All of these conversations are, are pertinent. And we've been privy to being able to participate in that, whether we're able to resolve them or not. But the, the level of our sensitization is very high. And so from that perspective, then working with, you know, a, a French landscape firm, it's a, it's a series of negotiations. It's a grammar problem as well. It's a learning to speak the same language, learning to communicate the aspirations of the project uh, in ways that local residents will feel, um, you know, that they've been invited to participate in, in meaningful ways. And it's, it's such a different culture in terms of producing projects in their European context, where once a firm wins a project, the sale of that project is relegated to government. But in the American context, the continuous sale and uh, proposition of that project still lies flatly in the responsibility of the architect and the landscape architect. And that's something very new and challenging for our partners <laughs> and a kind of uh, discovery, let's say. <laughs> With respect to this business of being, you know, of the place or as an outsider and cultivating the outsider's mind or the outsider's eye, um, maintaining that identity in spite of the decade on the ground, engaging with these cultural institutions, has that in any way insulated you from dealing with, you know, the citizenry directly with the civilian, you know, like, or, or you know, to what extent are you engaging with with actual citizenry. Uh, I say this in, in part because our conversations in Detroit have led us to believe that the success of uh, recent planning and design efforts in the city have been built upon years of extended and uneven, but yet ultimately successful engagement processes. And we've been struck by both the, the diligence of that work, but also what seems to be a relative success story in, in the context of so many American cities where so many have a, a jaundiced eye toward consultation or engagement processes broadly, it seems as though a part of the story in Detroit recently has been that this engagement seems to be working, or am I, am I overreading that? I think it's working to an extent. I think that institutions, planners are paying a great amount of attention to the power and to the requirement of engaging a broad swath of residents and public. And that uh, without doing that work, without getting that feedback, projects simply cannot move forward. They can be thwarted and um, they might not have the sustainability and the longevity that, that, that the architects might have hoped for. In the case of this project, we used strategies for engagement that we've tested in very small scales at community levels. And so what we began with was opening a studio or an office in a storefront on Cass Ave and making that uh, space as available and open-ended as possible. It's a strategy that we've used before uh, when we converted a uh, barber shop in the North End into what we called the Bureau of Emergent Urbanity and keep, kept our doors open and made the, the space available to any resident that wanted to host uh, cultural programming in the space our attitude toward our office was very much the same. Of course, the pandemic has forced us to radically reconsider that strategy. 
And it has begun to really challenge us to reimagine what engagement can look like at a time when space is no longer available and access to uh, digital space is unequal. So what happens in a city where 40% of the population might not have access to Wi-Fi or to, to digital culture? And how do you include those people in the conversation about the figuration and the transformation of their cultural district? And how do you host conversations with a multiplicity of, of publics? This has been a huge challenge for, for the way we work typically, which is you know, highly interactive, uh, human-centered, that um, relies on cultural programming to attract a plethora of people from a range of backgrounds and scenarios to join us in the collective re reimagination of space. And so now as we turn to uh, digital platforms for that kind of feedback, we're deeply cognizant that we're going to have to do additional work in order to bring technology uh, to others to ensure that as broad a public engages in this conversation as possible. It's not an easy solution and it's one that's a work in progress. And presumably more work for our friends at the Detroit Public Library, right? Yes, exactly. Because those satellite libraries are really the pulsating hearts of so many communities. And so we're, we're looking for ways to, to create satellite spaces for the office now that it can no longer be um, a single core. The Cultural Center planning project is not the only landscape-based uh, project in the city of Detroit you and your partner engaged in. The past several years, I understand you've been focusing on the development of a land trust. Uh, tell us about the Detroit Cultivator Land Trust and your engagement with it. So the, the Detroit Cultivator Land Trust is a project we've been involved in for close to four years now. And it started uh, with us working with the Oakland Avenue Urban Farm on designing what they were interested in conceiving of as a civic commons for the North End neighborhood. And the idea was, how do you take an agricultural landscape, a productive landscape in a neo-rural scenario, and you couple it with a resurgence of wilderness in order to create biodiversity? and admit that productivity alone cannot create sufficient, sufficiently intriguing spaces in the urban realm, and that spaces of leisure and cultural production and cultural expression also need to be coupled with that kind of resurgent, uh, exuberant vegetal homesteading <laughs> that we see so, so much of in Detroit. And so we, we began to work together. In the early stages of that project, we realized that so much of the land that the Oakland Avenue Urban Farm was cultivating didn't belong to the Oakland Avenue Urban Farm. In fact, it was land that some of it might belong to the Detroit Land Bank. Uh, other parcels were privately owned. And it was really a kind of smorgasbord of, of ownership that produced the overall footprint of this, of this farm. And what we became aware of is that in order for this, for this project to be sustainable and for it to, to really operate in the way that the farm had hoped, we would need to produce a strategy for the farm to be able to own that land. And the first thing that we did 
was that we started to study what speculators do in the city of Detroit. You know, 25% of the city is owned by the Detroit Land Bank, a quasi-governmental, non-elected institution that manages uh, foreclosed properties in Detroit. Another 20 to 25% of the city is owned by speculators. And there's this infinite loop of sales and auctions where 50% of the, of the city of Detroit is no longer stewarded and no longer produces taxable income for, for the city. So what we did essentially with our partners at the farm was we began to imitate what speculators do. We looked at their strategies and we did the same thing, but with everyone who we considered moral investors sitting in the same room and uh, purchasing lots from the auction together collectively and in secret. And this process sort of it carried on for, for close to two years uh, with all of the lots purchased being gifted to the Oakland Avenue Urban Farm, which was a nonprofit. It took us uh, two years to retain that land and to secure the land and to ensure that it wouldn't instigate additional speculation in the vicinity of the, of the farm. And with that uh, land secured, we began to work together with the farm with a number of community partners on creating the first land trust. And so this is one of the projects that I would say we're most proud of because in our early practice, we worked exuberantly. We worked with uh, a lot of excitement. We worked with a, with, with a lot of delight in the cultural uh, capacities of the city and in, in our partnerships with artists and others without planning for the governance and the stewardship of some of the land and the properties with which we were engaged, sometimes unintentionally, we caused what I would say possible harm by raising the value of a, of a certain property or instigating speculators to become interested in investing in certain neighborhoods solely through the imaging of their possible futures. And so this is the project where the strategy of how to ensure that forced displacement doesn't happen precedes the the design and the architectural intervention. So I'm interested, Anya, to ask you about your own formation. So you, you did your undergraduate work in um, cultural and media studies, professional training in, in architecture. What if any of those experiences prepared you for, you know, first of all, the dealing with landscape as a, as, a, as a medium, but also the kinds of, you know, urban conditions or the challenges you're confronting in the context of Detroit? I'm, I'm interested to know to whether extent you had a sensitivity or an appetite for the kinds of you know social entrepreneur work and cultural production through the medium of landscape prior to arriving in Detroit, or, or was it directly out of the response to the the context? Well, I think from my undergraduate studies, I think I was one of the last, or I was on the tail end of people who studied semiotics, and by the time I graduated, it transformed into uh, modern media and culture, but ultimately. I've always fancied myself secretly as a semiotician. And so going back to that question of how do we produce meaning in the built environment, that has been the driving interest in the things that we do, in the images that we produce, and uh, in the environments that we believe can begin to communicate certain collective meanings and through experience and through collective imaginary. So that, that's been sort of the, that, that's been the, the filet. It's been the, the continuous driver of how, of how we work. 
Our very first project in Detroit was a media festival in a park where we brought together 10 years of media on the subject of Detroit. This was our first foray into how do we begin to make sense of what's happening here. And we invited all of the filmmakers who had made a film on the subject of Detroit and all of the people that they had filmed. And that gave us 36 hours of continuous material and um, programming with which to begin to make sense of the environment and the way that it's imaged, represented, narrated, transformed, how we capitalize on it, and, and how we as architects can begin to inflect its meaning by transforming the expectations of the images that precede us. And Detroit, it's a place whose image is so powerful. And we all have certain meanings attached to it already before even visiting, before going there. And we certainly, so many of us have an understanding of the sounds and the vanguard cultural practices that it's produced. It's interesting, you know, your kind of self-described identity as a semiotician, right? You're using the built environment as a as a set of mediums through which through which to think about meaning. And in that regard, I mean, so much of your work and so much of our conversation has really been about the meaning for whom, right? For which audiences are we describing? A part of you know, what strikes me about your practice has been what I would describe as a, a kind of ambitious modesty. You know, there is a kind of humility underneath the sense of, you know, you have technical and cultural expertise and you're not shy about that you you bring you know both in you and your partner but also in your in your collaborations you bring you know world leading design expertise but with a level of humility with respect to the given conditions and the given conditions as you're describing them they include the lives and aspirations and hopes and dreams of people that have lived here for a very long time much longer than you have do you think of yourself and in your practice as a part of a vanguard of emergent practice in this regard? I mean, on the one hand, what you've said, I could imagine being described as, you know, architecture as a socially engaged art form or cultural practice that if I were in Western Europe or Latin America would just seem to be self-evident. Of course, the architecture should be in response to community, in response to humanity. And yet in the American city, so often it's described differently. So I'm interested to draw you out a little bit on your, on your the way that you think of your practice on that spectrum of to what extent is it simply about arriving at meaning for an audience and are any media available to you? Are, are you willing to completely you know, uh, abandon the identity of the architect culturally or, or are there limits to that uh, activity? We don't think of ourselves as entirely original <laughs> because uh, we, we think that we follow in the footsteps of um, certain 90s and early knots practices, especially in the, in the European tradition that oscillated between art practice, installation art, and architecture, and moved fluidly between those. In particular, I would say uh, we've been highly inspired by Patrick Bouchard and the plethora of, pract of small-scale practices that he spawned around cultural spaces of self-expression and, and mixity. But I think, and, and like you said, if, if we were practicing in, in a Latin American context, if we were connected with a more robust series of, of, with a more robust government that supported these kinds of practices, I think that we would be part of a kind of movement. But in the American context, I think we are slightly different insofar as uh, in order to practice this way, we also have to come up with our own capital. And so we need to start by 
identifying our own projects, finding support for those part projects, galvanizing networks of people, working in a slow-cooked manner to um, realize the aspirations of a plethora of different perspectives, prototype those projects and see the, the social and political effects, and then figure out ways for, for them to become sustainable and to, to be modeled um, in the real world. That's a really uh, long uh, process. And so in the US, we sometimes feel slightly alone. We, we feel like we have fewer friends than we do um, in places where, uh, where other systems support this kind of, this kind of work. I mean, I know that your work on behalf of the Detroit Cultivator Land Trust has been in part motivated by the historic condition in Detroit that a generation or more have lost one of the great American instruments of generational wealth uh, transmission, which is single private home ownership. Given the, the waves of of, of abandonment uh, and the waves of uh, demolition. Of course, Detroit has not only seen uh, so-called white flight in the 20th century, but also has seen uh, the loss of the kind of economic uh, incremental potential that home ownership has represented for so many people. In that regard, I know that you're also interested in the role of land banking. Uh, you've described uh, something like a half of the land area of Detroit's 139 acres as being given over to either a single land trust, the Detroit Land Trust, or in the hands of private speculators. And so, so in, that, in that context, what, what's the role for the architect activist or the social entrepreneur come cultural producer? How do you see your practice responding to that condition? One of the things that we often think about is when you consider that 50% of the city is open-ended, and could be transformed, could be purchased, could be redeveloped by collective entities. Why is there a single land trust currently in Detroit? Why are we the first? That has been something that, you know, not, not from an arrogant perspective, but I've always wondered, like, why didn't other people get together and do the same thing we did? We purchased these lots for $200. We put them in a collective pot. We spent, you know, under $5,000 to acquire six acres. Why aren't other communities doing the same thing? This isn't rocket science. And so that's, those are instances when I begin to understand or where we begin to consider the importance and the complexity and the challenge of the American dream in the most modern of American cities. You know, the, the accrual of capital and the accrual of additional wealth is the backbone of uh, Detroit's urbanism and its promise of creating social mobility. And so to, to bank together in a scenario where that's impossible makes alternate forms of governance and, and radical possibilities in the reinvention of the environment very difficult because uh, we're talking about landscapes where um, people weren't able to purchase homes and uh, accrue additional capital over generations or where they lost that access to capital. And so while there are so many radical ways for us to reimagine urbanity and urbanisms and collective uses of, of this possible public landscape, the return to privatization that's constantly the driver for the way that, that we reinvest in the city and so new models are virtually impossible, or at least they're very difficult to arrive at. 
that's a discovery for us because we did, we, we are, you know, stalwart, you know, utopian, naive, middle-aged people, <laughs> which is incredible. Like it's an incredible combination, but we keep thinking like, wait a minute, something completely alternative is possible here. The ingredients are all there. Why aren't we seeing it happen on a larger scale? Why is redevelopment still driven by normative ideas about real estate values and uh, normative ideas about taxation? One of the things that we've been working on is when you look at the amount of land available to uh, the reimagination of collective experience in the built environment, it's impressive. And what the um, architect in our imaginary begins to do and the urbanist begins to do is create images of its possible transformation. So when we first started working with uh, the Oakland Avenue Urban Farm, and when we found out that they did not own the land that they were farming, we asked them why. Why were they not concerned uh, with, with issues of land ownership? And at that time, four or five years ago, the response was, why would anyone want to purchase this land? It doesn't have any significant value, and we don't believe that we would ever be displaced from our activity on this land. Our hunch was the land was close enough to the city center and to redevelopment zones that in short notice, this would become an issue and that a strategic planning around how to safeguard this landscape would be really critical given the amount of sweat equity that uh, community members had already invested in the transformation of that landscape. What again, what architects can begin to do and what, what we set out to do was to create images of its value, its reoccupation, of its reimagination so that there would be a sense of uh, gravitas and a drive to action uh, to create a stewardship strategy and a new mechanism for collective governance of this landscape. Again, to offer new models of how communities can begin to reimagine public space. That was our goal. Anya, over the past decade, you've been, you know, kind of, you had a front, front row seat to the kind of renewed engagement with the design professions and planning as Detroit has become really a central question for thinking about the American city. As you've seen that decade, as you've seen the uh, community engagement efforts, collaborations between uh, cultural organizations, the, the role of uh, the philanthropic entities, I'm struck by the number of different actors, you know, the public sector, the citizenry engaged, the design professionals. The picture that's painted for me often is one in which everyone has played their role in Detroit's relative renaissance in the past several years. I'm interested in your perspective on that. And to what extent are you optimistic about, you know, the role that design and planning has held in Detroit in the past several years? And as that work goes forward, are you are you optimistic? <laughs> Optimism is a, is a strong word. It's, it's an instrumental term for being able to continue doing this, this kind of work. So yes, if, if, I, if we weren't optimistic, we'd just have to stop right about now. But we are optimistic that it's still possible for the, the design profession to inflect, to shape, to participate in the production of democratic practices 
and to reinvest in meaningful ways in spaces where, you know, I would put it this way, you know, one of the motivations that, that um, another of the motivations that has guided us is the question of how we address the perennial criticism of architecture, namely that it's in service to power and capital, that it's always solely in service to power and capital. One of the ways that we found working in Detroit that was inspirational to us is to find those sources of capital on our own and then to be able to negotiate their investment with a collective of partners uh, in order to come up with something a little bit more holistic. So the pluralism of actors that are always shaping the conversation around what Uh, space and the built environment should look like, how it should act, who should own it, and who should steward it into the future. So that's that's been a kind of guiding principle for um, what's kept us optimistic, because it's given us a sense that we could possibly have a little bit more agency as professionals, rather than being um, abdicated to the service sector. Something that we've been reckoning with in the last in the last uh, month or so in particular, is how do you begin to make a case for investing in in this cultural district when the post-pandemic urban recovery is bound to be long and slow and painful? How do you make a case that it's worthwhile to continue to invest in cultural infrastructure uh, in the heart of the city when there are so many needs that are becoming clear and frontal in the, in the city of Detroit and all of its neighborhoods? How do you make a case for still investing in the heart of the city in this cultural district? So w- one of the ways that we've been thinking about this and, and what our research points to is, you know, what attracted people to downtowns, to to city centers across uh, North America pre-pandemic was largely work. And for white collar workers, uh, that meant going to offices. But uh, we've seen about 40% of US workers, largely from um, a kind of higher educated uh, group, be able to rather comfortably Uh, disengage from office space and to work from home. And then we've seen another 60% of workers who can't work from home be affected radically by the decline in daily commuters, by uh, the decline in business travel and the domino effect that that's had on jobs that support and service the workers in the center of cities. We also know that most probably a hybrid model of work is bound to emerge. Something that balances the efficiencies gained by working remotely with the benefits of continued social interaction and the creativity that kind of interaction spawns, which just can't be replicated from home. So in the future, if we know that the center of cities most probably will not be rebuilt entirely on a workforce long-term that uh, works, works from offices and from office spaces, how else can we imagine inflecting and energizing and rendering dynamic the space of, uh, at the center of our cities? 
And I think the case that we're, we're making here is that culture will still move people when office spaces no longer can, when we no longer have those strict binary oppositions between live and workspace that require us to move across cities and experience different districts. We still believe that cultural experience will always move people. And so that possibility of creating a space of diversity, of resilience, to generate uh, new forms of social capital and to bring uh, an ethos of collectivity, but also economic vibrancy uh, back to the center of the city, uh, that's very critical for us. I'm interested in that description of a practice which circumvents is too strong, but intervenes in a way engages with uh, the instruments of capital, engages with the production of lines of funding and finance, presumably engages in policy and uh, regulatory reform, engages in instruments like land trusts and other you know, forms of organization. And so would it be fair to read that work, Anya, as becoming literate about those institutional frameworks and those flows of power relations and then occupying them, intervening them so as to insulate your your populations from their most deleterious effects? It's also about making friends. <laughs> you simply can't become expert in all of the um, disciplines and domains that are necessary in order to create this kind of practice and create positive social impact. So one of the things that we've learned is, yes, we need to understand these domains, but we need to create partnerships. We need to have friends in high places that can really operate at a high level in order to make our spatial instigations a possibility. So this couldn't, you know, like even the small scale projects that we work on in communities, they wouldn't be possible without moral investors. Like we work with fellow citizens, a team of moral investors and social entrepreneurs uh, that have been critical to, to shaping the business planning and the modeling for, for this kind of work. Uh, we work with business planners from U of M's uh, Ross Business School. We work with legal teams who capture our aspirations and transform them into uh, very dull and very efficient contracts. And that's, that's critical. So I think, yes, we, we need to understand the tools of operation and the instruments of power. And then we need to be able to partner with people who really know how to wield them. And Yasurata, thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. Our producers are Aziz Barber, Charlie Gilmore, Jeffrey S. Nesbitt, and Mercedes Peralta. Music is by Kevin Graham. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.